we say about Zion, uh, have for years and will continue to say it, is everyone is welcome here, no matter where you're at on your faith journey. And you've heard me say a lot about uh, you know, whether you're far from God, finding your way back to God, or trying to figure out if you even believe in God. Uh, we like to uh, make sure that everybody knows that Zion is a safe place, and we want it to continue to be a safe place for people to explore uh, the claims of Jesus. Another term that is used for people who are on a journey is the term skeptic. You know what I mean when I say a skeptic. Somebody who looks at the claims of Jesus, of Christianity, and and it's not that they're completely anti-Christianity. It's not that they're atheists. It's just that at this point or at a certain point in their life, they would consider themselves skeptical, just not sure. They don't know. And, And usually that skepticism is, is met with some questions. I have questions about Christianity that I haven't been able to wrestle to the ground. I haven't been able to rationalize in my own mind. I haven't been able to settle in, settle in my own life. And therefore, because I have those questions, I remain skeptical and unready to be all in when it comes to who Jesus is. So one of the questions that skeptics often ask to justify their objection is a simple one, and it's one that, that I know that you know, you've probably heard, and maybe, maybe you're here, and as a seeker or a skeptic or somebody who's still trying to figure things out, maybe this is a question that you have. Are you ready? Simply this. How could a loving God send someone to hell? That's what we're talking about today. Welcome. Picked a great day to come to church, right? See, skeptics will say, you know, if if Christians believe that, then Christianity can't possibly be true. I mean, how can anyone take Christianity seriously if it teaches that there is a, a place called hell where God sends people who reject him for all of eternity? Uh, For the skeptic, to them, it seems that the idea of hell, it it makes God out to be cruel, mean, maybe even vengeful, that that there's this being who delights in torturing people (laughs) who don't believe. For, For some skeptics, they conclude that it just doesn't seem fair. The idea of of hell just doesn't seem fair. You've heard the phrase, the punishment exceeds the crime, right? The punishment exceeds the crime when I think about hell, so therefore I I have these objections. When I I think about people in my life that I'm praying for, uh, people that I care about, that I want to meet Jesus, this is one of their biggest questions. This is where their skepticism really gets ratcheted up because they, they, and we've had this conversation, the the conversation has gone something like this. If somebody lives a a good life, a good life goes to hell, but then somebody can live a wicked life, but on their deathbed turn to Christ and get to go to heaven and, and, and this person, a friend of mine's mind, they, they would say that just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It doesn't seem fair. This morning, 
my thoughts, this message, isn't directed toward those who have yet to embrace Christianity. So I'm not thinking of, of them as we unpack the text. Today, I'm thinking of, of those who claim to be following Jesus, which I would imagine is most of us in this room, but fall into one of several categories. Category one is, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in hell. That was God 1.0 stuff. That, that, was, that was Old Testament. Now God, I read somewhere that God is love, and I'm just going to focus on love, 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 and I think that God's love means that there can't possibly be a place called hell. Or category two, you, you believe in hell. You, you, you kind of say, yeah, I know it's there, but, but you don't think about it much, if at all. And let me just speak to you, right? I get it. I mean, why would we spend a lot of time thinking about a place that we're never going to go, right? Why, why would we spend time thinking about a place that we are, we're not going to end up? But here's what I, I, I'm convinced of. If we'll think correctly about hell and think more often about it, it may or it should deepen our burden for other people. And then there's a third category of believers that would say this, that the fact that there is a hell has caused me or is causing me to experience a type of crisis of faith. Like when I think about hell, yes, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the gospel, but man, that, the, the whole idea of hell just it creates in me this, this crisis. You see it as a problem. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, the idea of hell, if it lay in my power. My hope today, my prayer, my desired outcome for this message is very simple. is that we, as God's people, would see God's heart behind why hell is real. That's my goal. If you have your Bible open to Luke 16, we're going to look at a story that Jesus told. And, and before we get to the story, I, I want to just kind of say a couple more things. Our experiences shape our views, right? We've talked about that. The experiences that we've had in life shape our, our worldview, our view of how life ought to be. Well, again, we, we know it's true in, in a lot of different arenas. I'll keep it real simple. Sports. Your experience with sports shape your views. If you grew up in a home that, that loved the Steelers, with that love of the Steelers comes a hatred of the Ravens, right? And all Steeler fans said, amen. amen, right? You didn't grow up intentionally hating the Ravens, but because of your experience of growing up in a Steeler home, it just shaped how you viewed black and purple, right? The same is true when it comes to stereotypes. Again, whether it's, it's, it's 
stereotypes about people, whether it's stereotypes about, about, about politics, whether it's stereotypes about other, other things in life, our, our, our experiences shape our views with, with everything. And why do I say that? Well, now let's carry that same idea over to the Bible, okay? Let's carry the same idea over to the text. And write this down. If you've never thought about it, this is true. How we are introduced to a text shapes how we view it. And, and so now, every time you read certain stories in the Bible, every time you read certain passages in the Bible, th- there are images, there are things that come to mind, especially when it comes to, to, to like gospel stories or Old Testament stories. And, and those images are based on what you saw and heard probably in Sunday school class. And to me, you know, um, a, lot of, a lot of stories in the Bible, in my mind's eye, look like flannel graph. David, Goliath, right? Because that's how I was introduced to those stories. I was introduced to them by, you know, by a, you know, a, a, a dear saint in a basement Sunday school class, and, and I was taught those stories through her lens, her view, her filter. And as I was introduced to, to stories, that's how that shaped how I see them, okay? And, and when it comes to, to hell... Right? And when it comes to this passage that we're going to read together, we all have to confront the reality that how we were introduced to the concept, the idea, to teachings on hell shapes how we view it and how we think about it today. And, I, and I'll tell you how I was introduced to hell. I was introduced to hell through, and some of you are old enough will know exactly what I mean when I say this, through chick tracks. How many of you know what, what, I, what I mean when I, by, when I say chick gospel tracts? They were little booklets, okay, that were evangelistic in nature, and, and they, were, they were high in shock value. Like, they were through the, like, if you wanted to shock people about hell, you could hand them one of these little gospel booklets, and you could turn the pages and if you're a kid, if you're a 10-year-old grabbing it off the shelf in your church and you're reading it during Sunday night church because you don't want to listen to the preacher, so you just kind of read these little booklets, you would be scared to death because hell was hot and it was scary and it was dark and, and there was yelling and there was screaming and it was horror. It was horror. That was how I was introduced to the concept, the idea, the teaching on hell. So it, 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 for me, every time that I read about, think about hell, I have to intentionally stop and think, okay, is this interpretation of the passage, is my, my view rooted in the truth, or is it just rooted in how I was influenced, how I was introduced to the text? Does that make sense? All right? And, and I say that because I think it's important for a lot of us, based on how we were introduced to the, this idea, this place called hell. See, scare, text, scare tactics were never Jesus' style. All right? Scare tactics were never Jesus' style, but Jesus never shied away from the topic of hell. 
He never shied away from it. As a matter of fact, and you've heard preachers say this before, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about, than he did about heaven. All right? So all that kind of as a, as a, as a framework. I'm going to go ahead and read this story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. And here's one of the aha moments for me even as I unpack this. Is this story in Luke 16 a real story? Did this happen? Or is this one of Jesus' many parables? Is he using this story to teach us not the nuts and bolts, not the specific inner workings of hell, but to teach us something bigger, give us a bigger view to, to, to think about when it comes to hell? I was taught growing up that because a man's name was used in the story, therefore it wasn't a parable, but it actually this is a real life incident. I'm not convinced of that any longer. And I'm not going to get into why I'm not convinced of that any longer, but I think the reason that Jesus uses a man's name specifically in the story is, is intentional and purposeful because of what he's trying to communicate through this story, and, and I'll, I'll flesh out some of this as we work through it. But I just want to read the story. Some of you, automatically, you're going to go back to a church basement or maybe the back of a, you know, the back of a church uh, as a kid looking at a chick track as I, as I read this story. So here was, here's, here's what Jesus said. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And, his, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Again, I, I'll stop right here. Think heaven. When we talk about Abraham's side, some of your Bibles might say Abraham's bosom. They would have un understood this to be what we think about when we think about heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, some of your versions say hell. Again, that's what we think about, right? Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. We'll talk about why Abraham's in this story in a minute. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things? But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, there between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they, be, they, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
How many of you have already an image in your head of this story because you've heard it preached, you've heard it taught? Anybody? Anybody that's the first time you've seen this in the Bible and you're like, oh my goodness. Right? Some? Okay. All right. So in the story, we're, we are re- introduced to two main characters, the rich man and a guy named Lazarus. So let's make some observations. Let's start with the rich man. Well, what, we, what do we know about him is, is that the rich man is very religious. Now, it's interesting, if you, and we won't look there, but back in verse 14, uh, gathered in the crowd that day, and, and, Luke, uh, and Luke says in verse 14 that there were Pharisees present. So again, some of this story, some of this was, I believe, for the sake of the Pharisees who were in the crowd. All right, these religious people who are in the crowd, they needed to, to hear what Jesus is saying in this story. But then if you look down in verse 24, he refers to Abraham. Again, the father of the, of the Jewish nation. Which, again, they would have connected the dots that Jesus is trying to communicate that this rich man was a good Jew. That, that Father Abraham is part of the story. They would have connected. Jesus is trying to say this man is a good Jew. He was moral. He followed the rules. He was a decent guy. Yet his religion never made a change in his lifestyle. Why? Well, probably for a lot of reasons. But if you read the first part of the story, part of the story was the fact that the rich man ignored the needs of the poor guy. The rich man ignored Lazarus. He walked by him. He ignored him. He ignored the fact that Lazarus was begging for food. There's something else about the rich man. He's very, very rich, right? He's very rich, but we aren't given his name. And I think this is a brilliant on Jesus' part. Now, this is not original with me. I got to give credit to Tim Keller for pointing this out because Tim Keller, uh, pastor out in New York City, he's brilliant and I'm not. Uh, so he pointed out that perhaps the reason, and if this was Jesus' reason for, for doing this, brilliant storytelling on Jesus' part. The reason why he didn't use a name for the, the rich man was because he wanted to emphasize that for him, his money was his identity. That's where he found his identity. His, his identity was in his money, and hence the reason why in the story you have the rich man not given a name, but he does use a name for Lazarus. And, and we don't know for sure, but I think if that's the case, it's a brilliant play, brilliant storytelling on Jesus' on Jesus's part. There's something else in this story that kind of jumped off the page at me that I've never thought about before. It's this thought that he never asked to get out. He, he never asked, can you get me out of here? And we'll, we'll talk about why that is in, in just a minute. And even in hell, the rich man wants to boss Lazarus around. Hey, have Lazarus go and do this. He, he's still Again, connected with his identity, thinking that that he can dictate what other people do. So the point really is kind of, I think this, that that those who were there listening, um, they would make this conclusion about the rich man, that his morals were right and his money was overflowing, 
Or we can say it this way, the rich man looked good on the outside, but inside he was rotten to the core. The outside looked good, but on the inside he was rotten to the core. And so I think that's where we can begin to gain some understanding about hell as Jesus tells this story. See, hell is simply a continuation of life on earth. What do I mean by that? It's a continuation of life on earth, rotten to the core. It's a place with no space for God. Again, this man continued to live for himself here on earth, um, doing what he wanted, how he wanted it, and when he dies, he continues to try to live that way. He doesn't change. He doesn't realize, I was wrong. He doesn't realize, I messed up. He doesn't realize, I should have done differently. In hell, he's still that rich man. He's continuing in hell to live in the way and think in the way that he was living here on earth. And I think that's a new, I think that's an insightful way to think about hell is that hell is a place that really is just a continuation of the way we lived here on earth. I've got no space for God here on earth. And in hell, people who are there will continue to believe, I have no space for God. Why? Because God is absent. God is absent. He's not there. You know, when, again, wrestling with, with the, idea, the idea of hell. Um, what's the worst part of hell? And again, depending on how you, you grew up, you might think, it's the flames. It's the fact that hell is hot. Well, it's, it's the screams. It's the fact that there are screams that are there, right? It's the fact that it's, that it's never ending, that all of that, whatever hell is, it's gonna be forever. And, 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 and again, I think... For me, and this is why I'm so glad that I'm not going to be there for eternity, but for me, the, the worst part about hell is the fact that hell is a place that is completely absent of the presence of God. It, it's completely absent from the presence of God. See, I, I can go through anything in this life with God's presence, Right? I mean, I, I'd like to think I can. Well, whatever happens in this life, I can, I can deal with. doesn't mean it's easy, but knowing that God is present allows me or helps me to get through it. But just imagine all of eternity separated from the very presence of God with no hope of ever being able to experience him forever. Again, however you want to think about hell, to me, that's the worst part, is that, I, is that people in hell will have to exist forever apart from his presence. One of the ways that we often hear hell described, we see it in some, some passages in the Old Testament, and we see it often in the New Testament, is we, we see hell is described as as a fire, right? Uh, that's what comes to our mind when we think about hell. We think fire. And, and is, there, is hell a literal place of fire? Yes or no? The question 
The answer to that question for me is I'm not sure. I've never been there, and I'm glad I'm not going to find out. But if it's real, if we're talking about eternity in real flames, then hello, then, then that's pretty awful. But if you think about it in terms of a metaphor, if we just, just kind of say, okay, we're not sure, at the very least, Jesus wants us to think about hell in terms of a fire being a metaphor. And we can think about some things about, about a fire. One of the things that's true about fire is, is that a fire is insatiable. A fire never says, I've had enough. I'll just go out quietly on my own. Fire spreads. It continues to spread and continues to consume and there is no, until there is nothing left to consume. It is never satisfied. Remember that statement. Fire is insatiable. Fire is never satisfied. Now let's bring that back and think about the rich man. The rich man in his life, we could say, was never satisfied. He lived a life that was all about consuming, wanting more, wanting more, wanting more, wanting more. I need more money. I need more houses. I need more boats. I need more land. I need more stuff. This is what we think of often when we think of the rich man or anybody who is rich in the world's eyes. Now let's fast forward and we think about our ones today, people in our life who are consuming. And if we're being honest, we probably all know people, and there were times in our life that that's all we wanted to, con- to do was to consume We just wanted more, we wanted more, we wanted more, we wanted more. And for some of us, that more was money. I just want more, I just want more, I need a little bit more, I need more, I need more, I need more. But, and here's where I want to kind of nuance this story, that Jesus uses a rich man who was um, pursuing, chasing after money, That was what he never got enough of. That's what he was never satisfied with. But there are other individuals, and some of you, this is your story. You can look back in your life, and and you can say, "Before, before I met Jesus, my God wasn't money. My God was comfort. I just wanted more more comfort. I just wanted life to be easy. And I I did everything to make life easier and more comfortable. And, And I could never make my life as comfortable as I wanted it to be. Others might say this, my life was all about, about pleasure, okay? And we can define that a whole bunch of ways, but some of you remember in your life that, that when it came to pleasure, you just wanted more pleasure and more pleasure and more pleasure and more pleasure and more pleasure, and you just craved it, desired it. It was never satisfied, you get me? It was never satisfied. You just wanted more of what you were holding on to, what your idol was, Others, it was power. Some, for your, your story before Jesus was, I just wanted more power. I just wanted more power. I wanted more popularity. I wanted more praise. I wanted more, 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 more. And, and, and for you, you're, it was, there was something in your life that was never satisfied. It was all consuming, and you just wanted more of it. And listen, today, that's where some of our ones are. They want something, and that's something that they're chasing after, they can't get enough of. And when they get some of it, they conclude it's not enough. 
They get more money, and they say it's not enough. They get more comfort, and they say it's not enough. They get more pleasure, and they say there's not enough. Uh, they, they want more control, and they say it's not enough. They, got, they, they get more, uh, they get more um, connections, whatever, and they say it's not enough. And listen, one of the things about hell that is so awful in my mind is that mentality that you have here on earth when you die. When I talk about hell being a continuation of life here on earth, is that when you cross over into eternity without Christ, that same mentality of wanting more, wanting more, wanting more will never be satisfied. It'll never be fulfilled. Eternity of just this insatiable appetite for more. I mean, that's, that's awful. Whatever hell is, that's an awful thought. Another word that is often used to describe hell is the word darkness. What is darkness? It's the absence of light. And so again, if we're kind of just kind of trying to think with a little bit of a little bit of nuance, we're trying to think what was Jesus driving at when he talks about hell being darkness? Is it literal darkness? Could be probably is because of the absence of God. But, but think about what darkness is. Darkness is what happens when we tell light, we don't want you. Right? Hey, guys, turn out the lights for me. Why? I don't want light. I want darkness. Now think about that when it comes to hell. Hell, in essence, is what happens when we tell God to get out. Get out. Get out. Get out. And for our family, our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, our ones that we're praying for, listen, they they would never admit, they would never say that they have told God, get out. But in reality, that's what they do every single day. That's what they're doing every single day. Get out, get out, get out. They may experience some light now. You know, theologians call it common grace. Pagans, people who are walking in darkness, will will get glimpses of light. The the joy of a child, the the, the pleasure of a good meal, right? The the, the thrill of, of good news, right? That's common grace. But by and large... Our family, our friends, who haven't yet repented and believed the gospel, they're saying every single day, God, get out. And one day, one day, hell is God accommodating their desire for him to get out. And when he says, I'm out for all of eternity, That's darkness because it's the absence of God's presence. See, C.S. Lewis said said it a whole lot better than I'm about to say it, but he said this, that we have a choice. We can say to God, your will be done now, or God will say one day, your will be done in eternity. That's, That's... That's where it's at. Let's pray that our ones would choose 
his way over their own. People hear me talking about hell and, and hear as, as believers, you know, this talk of hell and they, they say, I think, I just, I don't understand. I mean, isn't God, isn't God for us? Isn't God for us? Isn't he, isn't he on our side? Yes, he is. He takes, listen, he takes no pleasure in the reality of hell. His desire has been and will continue to be that all should repent and not perish. That's what the cross is all about. It's a demonstration of his love for us and his desire that all would repent. I mean, even in this parable, if you go back and look at verse 25, that we see this imagery that God is tender-hearted. He calls the rich man child. It's the word technon. He cared about the rich man. And listen, and he cares about your one. He cares about you. He cares about us. Well, then why did he make hell? I mean, that's a question, right? That's an honest question. Why, why did he make it? I'm going to say something that's super counterintuitive to answer that question. Why did God make hell? You ready? Love. It's counterintuitive. Let me explain. For there to be love, there has to be the opportunity to reject it and resist it. For there to be a relationship that experiences love, there also has to be an opportunity for one person to say, I don't want it, I reject it, I'm walking away from it. And so God is God, and the way he set up the universe is he designed this, this world and he designed us with the capacity to choose. The fact of the matter is, it would be unloving if he didn't put inside of our DNA, inside of our, of our being, if he didn't put the opportunity for us to say no to him, to resist and reject him. And the implication is this, as much as we may not like it, as much as we may not like it, God designed the universe so that when somebody says to God, get out, he'll accommodate them. Okay. He honors that request. So therefore, we can say it this way, and this is more than just preacher talk. This is, I think, a a good theological framework, all right? We can say theologically that God doesn't send anyone to hell. We send ourselves. Hell, whatever hell is or isn't, all right, whatever, whatever the experience is of hell, it is the final, natural, and eternal result of saying, get out to God. It's, 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 it's what happens when you say, get out to God. And again, this still causes us to lean in and say, but, but Trent, hell makes it seem like God is angry. I can't get over that. That hell, it just makes God out to be this angry, like, ogre. Let me be clear this morning. God is angry. God is angry at sin. But his anger is like that of a parent. 
It's a loving anger. Parents, you ever get angry at your kids? Now, again, we, uh, this isn't a parenting sermon, so I'm not talking about getting, parent, getting mad at your kids when they spill their milk, you know, or, you know, forget to do their chores, right? I'm not talking about that, but, but like when your kids lie, does that make you angry? When they cheat, when they steal, they ever steal, right? Is it okay to get angry, to feel like, I'm upset, I'm angry about this? Yes, because you know the kind of consequences that come to your children if they continue to lie, to cheat, to steal. You know that those traits, if they become ingrained in them, will eventually destroy them when they get older. So as a parent, you get angry, and you deal with that situation with your kids. His anger is a righteous anger. When we talk about righteous anger, what are we talking about? You know, righteous anger, sometimes we say, well, it's, it's, it's anger without sin, and yes, that's part of it, and we need to learn how to get angry, be angry at sin without sinning ourselves. But righteous anger really literally means that God has the right to be angry. He has the right to be angry at our sin. And I get it that it's hard to grasp that idea of the righteous anger of God. I get it. It's hard. So let me try to explain. Some would say, you know, I get, I get that Hitler is in hell. I get that Bin Laden is hell, is in hell. I mean, they are, they are truly evil people who definitely deserve it. But what I don't get is I just don't get that God would ever send decent people there. Good guys, good gals, people who just, just tried to do the right thing. I just don't get it. Well, the essence of sin, we peel it all away. The essence of sin is really a refusal to live under God's authority, right? It's a refusal to live under his authority and a refusal to live for his glory because that is why we were created. We were created for his glory. We were created to live under his authority. And so it's not enough to say, well, most of the time I don't do really bad things. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of times that I do pretty good things. And then at the end of the day, say, but I'm not living under his authority and I'm not living, living for his glory. But I, I still do some good stuff. This might not be the best way to, to illustrate it, but let me, let me give it a shot. Imagine there's a guy who's having an affair on his wife. Pretty bad, right? Anybody would, would argue that that's, that's, that's bad? That's a bad thing. But what would, what would happen if... Like, on his way, he goes to the hotel to, to meet her. On his way up to the room, uh, he gives the bellboy a tip. Is tipping the bellboy a good thing? Sure it is. But it doesn't minimize what he's in the middle of doing. Right? He could tip the bellboy every time he shows up at the hotel. It still doesn't justify what he's doing. And in the same way, we commit daily a, lack of a better term, a, a, this cosmic adultery when we choose not to live under his authority, even if we tip the bellboy now and then. 
I do this good thing, I do that good thing, I do this good, you know, I go here, I go there, whatever, whatever. But the question isn't that. The question is, have you come under God's authority? Are you living for his glory? Because that is why you were made. See, the reality of hell, it really shows us the extent of God's love in saving us. Again, I don't know that I have the mind to be able to to help you to see this or understand it, but stick with me. If I told you today that B.J. Wren paid off my debt for me, man, thanks, You 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 would think, man, that B.J., he's a pretty good guy. How good of a guy is B.J.? It depends, doesn't it? Did BJ pay off my $10 late charge for my, my garbage removal bill? Thanks. That's, that's great. I'm glad you did that. Did he pay off the $100 bill that I received because of going to the doctor and getting tests and this is what I end up having to pay? Even better. Thank you. Or did he pay off my, my mortgage? He paid off my debt, that's great, but until you understand what he actually paid, we'll determine what we really think of BJ, right? Again, this is not a perfect illustration, but just stick with me. See, I think it's fair to say that hell is a reminder of God's love for us because hell is the debt that we deserve for our sins. Hell is the debt that that we must pay for the sinful choices that we make in life. Whatever hell is, the absence of God, fire, darkness, whatever, whatever it is, pursuing something and never being satisfied, whatever hell is, we deserve it. But when we think of hell and we let it take us to the cross, Now when I look at the cross and I think about Jesus' sacrifice for me, when I think about his shed blood, it's a reminder of what he rescued me from, of the debt he paid so that I wouldn't have to pay it. So hell is a way for us to think about just how much God loves us. Yeah, but at the end of the day, Trent, I mean, I mean, I'm even hearing it today. Like, you know, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to resist scaring us, but, but you're kind of scaring us a little bit. I mean, and, and, and isn't coercion like not what God wants? And I would say, yeah, I, I, I would think that God doesn't want us to scare. He doesn't want us to manipulate people when we, when we talk about hell. All right? And I think, I think God would agree. If we go back in the story, the rich man wants to send somebody back from the dead to warn his brothers Look again at verse number 31. He says, Abraham says, if they, don't, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. Abraham says, that even if I sent someone from, from hell to warn them, they wouldn't listen. That would do it for me, though. Right? Somebody comes and knocks on my door, like, I just showed up from hell. I'm listening, right? But Abraham says, like, that's not, that's not it. 
What does Abraham say? Well, if you let your eyes go back up a little bit more into verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What's he saying there? What is Moses and the prophets? Again, the Jewish hearer in that moment would have simply thought about the scriptures. They have the scriptures. Let the scriptures be enough. We don't have to scare people. Just tell them the truth. The truth about God, the truth about grace, the truth about his love, the truth about forgiveness. The truth about the hope that we have offered to us because of Jesus. Because only when we experience the true nature of God's love will our heart be transformed and create a heart that learns to love and trust God. That ultimately decides, I want to live under his authority. I want to live for his glory. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't talk about hell. We have to be careful how we talk about it, when we talk about it, why we talk about it. And that's why I think, that's why I think today, for believers, I think it's more important that we sit for a minute in the reality of hell than we go out of here and tell other people about the reality of hell. I'd rather us go out and tell people about the reality of God's love, about his grace, about his forgiveness, about mercy, about the cross, about the empty tomb. The reminder, I think, is to me. The reminder, I think, is to to us that we do, we do have a responsibility to help people who right now are like the rich man, They're chasing after something that will never satisfy them. And if they continue chasing after something that will never satisfy them here on earth, when they cross death's door for all eternity, that same sense of like, I'm not satisfied, I want more, I want more, I want more, it will never be satisfied because that's what fire does, it's insatiable. And when they cross in the death's door, they will once and for all say to God, God, get out. And eternity, apart from God, is God saying, I'll I'll oblige. I'll give you what you wanted. So, as the worship team comes, The message isn't about teaching us to talk more about hell, but it should remind us that people must hear the gospel. They must hear the gospel. And my prayer is that people would come to understand the love of God and embrace that more than, not not instead of, but more than his judgment. And the way to help people with that is to talk about Christ. Talk about his death. Talk about his resurrection. He loves us so that we don't have to endure fire and darkness. He loves us so that one day our friends, our neighbors, and loved ones won't hear God in essence say, your will be done for all of eternity. I'm out. My presence is gone forever. And any potential repentance and forgiveness and hope right along with it.
So again, think about your one. Put them in the story. And be for them their Moses and the prophets. Be for them the one that they can read. Be for them the one who can, can talk to them about the truth of the gospel. We're going to go into time of communion now. And if you don't have a, anybody not get a communion, got communion up here. Somebody needs one. Anybody else need one? Couple. All right. So again, these moments at Zion are frequent, but they're frequent because we're forgetful. It's so easy for us to forget about the cross and, and why the cross was necessary and what the cross accomplished for us and what the cross can accomplish and do in the life of people who we know and love. And so what I want to ask us to do today as we, as we take communion is, first of all, we, we, we should always search our own hearts, right? Confess our sins, deal with things in our own life. That's the part of examining ourselves that, that we always want to do. But would you, would you, before you take the elements personally, would you pray for somebody? Somebody that you know that is far from God, finding their way out, finding their way back to God, or figuring out if they even believe in God, and just pray for them, that they would come to grips with their own mortality and that they would come to grips with the love of Christ demonstrated by his sacrifice and then his resurrection, which we'll celebrate next week. And then one last thing. This is one last opportunity for us to pray together. And so if you take your communion and, and you feel like you would do, like you can or would be willing to do this, can we just once again gather around and, and just pray for some of these names? If you have names to add, I've got cards there, here, and over there. I've also got Easter invites. If there are people that you want to invite to come to Easter, grab some of those invite cards. But we want to pray uh, this week, that, that next Sunday, some of our, our, our friends, some of our people that we know and love would meet Jesus. So... I'm going to pray, and then you can uh, spend some time thinking about um, Christ's sacrifice, his body and his blood, and then uh, we'll, we'll continue worshiping together. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. And I pray, God, that you would move us, move our hearts to better understand and align ourselves with your heart for others. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.